the challenge of deconstruction. Two-thirds of American Christians say that they struggle with doubt on a regular basis. Those who identify as atheists or agnostic, that number's on the rise. It's at 26%. Church attendance right now is at an all-time low. Part of that, of course, is COVID. Part of it is people saying we're not coming back to church. Gen Z is considered the least Christian generation in our nation's history. The author, James K.A. Smith, he put it this way. He said, we don't believe while doubting, we, or instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We are all Thomas now. So here's our culture. We breathe the second-hand smoke of doubt. Hey guys, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 206. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and our featured voice for this week is that of Dominic Doan. Dominic currently leads Pursuing Faith Ministries, which is working on Uh, equipping uh, leaders and preachers and churches to successfully navigate issues related to faith and doubt and apologetics. Dominic previously pastored a Jesus church in Portland, Oregon, and he spoke at our most recent training event in his new home of Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we're actually really thrilled that Dominic is coming out to our next training event which is taking place February 18th and 19th in Costa Mesa, California. Um, Here is a great talk uh, that he did in Colorado on how we're able to present the good news of Jesus uh, to people who don't believe that it's good news anymore, that the message of Christianity is actually bad for society. How can we have mercy on those who doubt? How can we present Christ to those who doubt? I know that you're going to enjoy this, and I hope that this talk causes you to not only consider coming along later on this month in Costa Mesa, but not just that, but also truly considering the the people who listen to our Bible teaching and who are wrestling with significant doubt. How can we, through the scriptures empowered by the Spirit, encourage and have mercy on those who doubt? It's so good to be here with you guys and um, just grateful for the opportunity to get to know some of you and hear your story and learn from what the Lord is doing in your life. And I just admire that you guys are, you're in the thick of it and you're pastoring in this moment in which we're in. And these are not easy times at all. And uh, so thank you. Thank you for, I don't know who invited me, but I'm thankful that it all happened. It came through Mike somehow, um, but I'm, I'm grateful to be here. So a little bit of my story. Um, I've been a pastor uh, in different contexts in three different churches for over 20 years. Uh, Hawaii, suffering for Jesus. Uh, North Carolina for a season. And then most recently in Portland, Oregon. And uh, now we live in Colorado. I am so thankful that we are here in this time. I've kind of had a slight uh, career change. Um, After 20 years of pastoring, the Lord just began to lead me more into full-time writing and speaking. So that's where we're at right now. And uh, we lead a nonprofit called Pursuing Faith. Um, I 
get the privilege of getting to talk about this fascinating word, homiletics. And there's different ways to approach it. Of course, you can get into the weeds and you could talk about style and cadence and the art of illustrations and pauses and all of that. But what I want to do tonight, is, as Pete mentioned, is I want to kind of zoom out, get a little meta with you and, and talk about how do we preach? What's a good homiletic in 2021? Times are changing rapidly and how we communicate, how we share, how we teach needs to adjust with that. What we teach doesn't change, but the style and the substance of how we preach, I think, needs some rethinking. Um, years ago, I was a missionary in Vanuatu. I don't know if you've heard of Vanuatu. Most people haven't. A lot of people, when I mention the name, they think it's somewhere in Africa. But it's actually this tiny island nation in the South Pacific. And it's like stepping into a National Geographic special. We lived in the jungle, no electricity, no running water. We spoke this weird language called Bislama. And I'm there teaching the Bible to a group of students who came from all these different tribes to our little school in the middle of the jungle and trying to teach Jesus and understand their culture at the same time. And every night, we would sit around a fire, and they called it talking story. Nowadays, story is what we do on Instagram, but in Vanuatu, they, they have this fascinating novel idea that story actually should be face-to-face. -face. It's an interesting concept. And we would just tell stories. Uh, we would share different parts of our life. And part of that was because there's nothing to do in Vanuatu. It's extremely just desolate, extremely primitive. But I heard the wildest stories of what they'd gone through, what they'd encountered, what they had seen. And one night, I'd been there about six months, they asked me, they're like, so Dominic, what is your favorite place to go to in America? And without thinking, I should have, but without thinking, I said, Disneyland. And they're like, what's Disneyland? And I'm like, how do I, I, I knew immediately I bit off way more than I could chew. I mean, how on earth do I describe Disneyland to a group of people who are living kind of in the dark ages when it comes to technology and many uh, hadn't, hadn't left that island. And so the best way to do it, and I'm doing it in their language, is I'm trying to describe what Disneyland was like. And I said, well, the first thing you see when you go there is there is a castle, but there's no word for castle in Bislama. The closest word that they have is big fella hut. So I said, there's a place in California with a big fella hut. And they're kind of tracking with me, like, how big is this hut? I'm like, it's like a hundred feet tall. It's really big. They're like, whoa, that's huge. And they're like, who lives inside the hut? And I, I said, well, um, there's a mouse. Um, and his name is Mickey. But the problem is, in their language, there's no word for, for mouse. Uh, the closest word that they have is big fella rat. So I said, there's a big fella hut in California. Inside the hut lives a big fella rat named Mickey. And they're like, how big is this rat? And I said, he's like 10 feet tall. It's big. And their eyes are just like huge because... Rats were a huge problem in Vanuatu. They're like, this is horrible. I'm like, well, no, no, no. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a real rat. There's someone inside the rat. <laughs> so he, he eats people? I'm like, no, he's like in the skin of the rat, and he like talks through the rat. It, it's like a person inside this skin, and, and they're like, demon possession? Like, they're totally freaking out at this point. And it was silent for a few moments as they're kind of absorbing this. 
And one of them asks, or one of them raised their hand, and they're like, uh, Dominic, and he's dead serious. He's like, you should never go to Disneyland. It is an evil place. Another student said, Mickey, Mickey the rat is a witch doctor. <laughs> so here I am. I'm like trying to describe, you know, the happiest place on earth. In their mind, it was a version of hell led by this mastermind slash rat named Mickey. I don't know about you, but sometimes preaching feels like you're sitting around a fire and all they're hearing is big fella hut, big fella rat. It's like you've had this encounter with God. You have read something in the word. You're excited to share what's on your heart. But sometimes in this moment in which we find ourselves in, it doesn't communicate well. And the question is, how do we begin to understand the context, the climate, the people, this time in which we're in. And so what I want to share with you tonight is I want to share three major challenges that you guys as communicators of the gospel are facing right now. And then I want to talk about how do we respond to those three major challenges. All in what, 14 minutes? <laughs> That's not long I have. So here's the first challenge. Number one, we are facing a challenge of suspicion. We live in a time where the prevailing ethos is one of cynicism. People are jaded. People distrust. A massive study, maybe you saw it, came out just a couple days ago. And they found that 75% of Gen Z believe that, quote, the future is frightening. Three out of four are saying we're scared to death of the future. 56% of Gen Z believe that the planet is doomed. So it's like we're a country of Eeyores now. Everything and everyone is suspect. It's like the guy who said, I'd like to be an optimist, but I don't think it'll work out. This is where we're at. We're suspicious of authority, technology, government, tech, big tech, businesses, churches, and pastors. And in some cases, the suspicion that culture is feeling towards us is for really, really good cause. I mean, we've seen over the last couple of years these horrific moral scandals, well-known Christian leaders and thinkers who have made horrible moral mistakes. And I've had conversation after conversation with, with people who are just grappling with their faith because they're like, if they did that, it was everything that they said a lie. Uh, you look at the most popular podcasts. I'm sure probably all of you have heard. I've talked to some of you tonight. Most popular podcasts in America right now, at least in the religion category, is the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And I'm sure you've been thinking through, why is that popular? Why is that striking a chord? And, and I think part of it is because there is something about that story where there's a growing angst, a growing jadedness towards institutions, towards pastors, where there's a growing sense that we're sick of the show, the lights, the songs, the sermons, the charismatic figureheads, the celebrities, the abuses of power. And it's like there's this hunger right now. There's a longing. And I think part of homiletics is learning to engage with the longings of culture. But there's a longing right now where people are wanting something more tangible, more real, an encounter with God, not just an encounter with a personality, a pastor who actually knows their name, spiritual leaders who actually care for their story. And because in many cases, Big C Church, it's done a horrific job 
prioritizing commercialism over community. I think it's fueling distrust towards people in ministry. And so we get up there to preach. We get up there to share what's put on our heart, but already we're dealing with all of these walls. The challenge of suspicion. Number two, this one's huge. The challenge of deconstruction. Two-thirds of American Christians say that they struggle with doubt on a regular basis. Those who identify as atheists or agnostic, that number's on the rise. It's at 26%. Church attendance right now is at an all-time low. Part of that, of course, is COVID. Part of it is people saying we're not coming back to church. Gen Z is considered the least Christian generation in our nation's history. The author, James K.A. Smith, he put it this way. He said, we don't believe while doubting, we, or instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We are all Thomas now. So here's our culture. We breathe the secondhand smoke of doubt. You go on social media, TikTok, Twitter, whatever, hashtag deconstruction. And it's everywhere. People sharing their stories of how their church hurt them or how their pastors spiritually abused them or how they no longer believe in the faith that they were given from their parents. And people more and more are identifying as progressive or ex-evangelical, well-known people who used to be in, in the thick of it when it came to Christian celebrity life have come out publicly in the last couple years, deconstructing their faith, walking away from their faith. Rhett and Link, YouTube stars, or Joshua Harris, remember I Kiss Dating Goodbye Guy, uh, Marty Sampson, worship leader from Hillsong, John Steingard, another musician, Abraham Piper more recently, John Piper's son. And it's like we're, we're seeing before us this tidal wave of doubt that's sweeping over our nation, so much so that not only pastors and churches seeing this and recognizing this, that even secular culture is taking note of this. New York Times, just a few weeks ago, they did a whole write-up on this. And this is what they wrote. There is a growing appetite online for accounts of rejecting one's evangelical upbringing. If the new atheist movement of the early 2000s devoted itself to intellectual combat with the claims of Christianity, the more recent ex-evangelical movement elevates personal stories of people who have walked away. We're facing a challenge of suspicion, a challenge of deconstruction. We're also facing, number three, a challenge of tribalism. (laughs) And I know we all have our stories to this. Um, There's a fascinating documentary uh, on Netflix. It's called The Social Experiment. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you do because it really just casts a a spotlight on what we're witnessing happen, the effects of what we're witnessing happen in people's lives and minds because of algorithms, monetization of personal info and data, and how because of social media and the way that it's all constructed, we're all living in these echo chambers that reinforce our beliefs and opinions. So some people that we know live in the Fox News bubble. And who they follow and what's then fed to them because of the algorithm, it just reinforces those beliefs. Other people live in the MSNBC universe. Hashtag Portland, right? Everything they follow, everything they they think about or the opinions they're exposed to, again, because of these algorithms. And this begins to play out now over a decade or so. And what we're seeing, especially highlighted over COVID, I think that just accelerated some of these social trends because we're all stuck inside. 
But we're seeing friendships being poisoned by social media, churches even being torn apart, people leaving churches that they were once a part of for years because of the church's take on masks or vaccines or politics or race. And and what we're seeing is many believers, instead of healing the world with the city of God, we're dividing our churches with the city of man. We're facing challenges. And these are only three. There's so many more. But I, I see the challenge of suspicion, the challenge of deconstruction, the challenge of tribalism. So how do we, in the face of these challenges that are before us, that I believe are only going to get worse, how do we approach this issue of homiletics? How do we, as communicators of Scripture, how do we preach well? How, how do we really capture and communicate the ethos of God to a world that is increasingly growing distant. Number one, preach Jesus to suspicion. Preach Jesus to suspicion. And this is something that has been highlighted over the course of the day. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, I resolve to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul, of course, is writing to the city of Corinth that in many ways wasn't all that different from the divisions and the issues that we see before us today. And what the apostle Paul does is says, in this context in which I find myself in, I'm resolved to keep my message laser focused on Jesus. And here's why this matters, because What I'm seeing now is even though people, especially young people, are deeply suspicious of church and pastors and and institutions, they're profoundly open, beautifully open, to hearing about Jesus. This actually gives me a ton of hope. A lot of stats have come out on this lately, how Gen Z is more open to Jesus than previous generations. 91% of Gen Z believe that Jesus was real. This compares to millennials who are pretty much jaded and cynical about everything. Um, Their belief that Jesus is real is much lower in percentage. 55% of Gen Z say, yeah, we actually believe he's God. 49% believe that he was sinless. What I'm seeing now with this emerging generation is, yeah, we're suspicious of church. We're suspicious of institutions. If you're a pastor, definitely. But we're open to hearing about Jesus. I believe if we're going to see revival in our day, personally, I think it's going to happen with Gen Z. I I think probably the next Martin Luther or Chuck Smith or whoever is probably on Zoom high school somewhere in some urban center, and God's just preparing his heart for what he's about to do through him. But but I, I really believe that God wants to use the emerging generation, and what's going to really launch that is a renewed wonder, a renewed passion, a renewed desire to love and know Jesus. And that gives me hope because, you know, you talk to a lot of people, and especially those who are in ministry, there's a lot of despair that's out there right now. Had a conversation with someone in California recently. They're like, oh, we're just post-Christian. We're secular. And and you kind of given up on, on the story that God was writing in his city, about to walk away. And that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, sure, we're post-Christian, but post-Christian can also mean (laughs) pre-revival. 
And I think that God is preparing, even through things like deconstruction, because sometimes deconstruction is exposing some of the termites that's in the wood. Sometimes walls need to be replaced. Sometimes the carpet needs to be ripped up. Sometimes ministry needs to be rethought, keeping the gospel and Jesus at the center. But, but some of these conversations can actually be healthy and constructive if we go into it with Jesus as our main focus. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, unless we preach Jesus rather than a set of morals, of the story, or timeless principles, or good advice, people will never truly understand, love, or obey the word of God. We preach Jesus to suspicion. Number two, we preach mercy to deconstruction. In Jude chapter two, it says, show mercy to those who doubt. We all know people who are doubting, who are deconstructing, who are walking away from their faith. I've Kind of the space I'm in right now with this ministry we've started, we're having conversations constantly with people, with parents, with young people who are in this space of deconstructing. And our posture as ministers of Jesus is one of mercy to those who are hurting and struggling because doubt actually is a form of trauma. In fact, the word doubt in the New Testament is the word elios, and it was used in the ancient world to describe a physician helping someone who had been wounded or had broken a bone. And I think this is something that we have to think through. Because when someone is doubting, when someone's deconstructing, sure, it can come across as, oh, they're just cynical and jaded and we write them off or marginalize them. But guaranteed, 99% behind that cynicism and that distrust and suspicion is a soul that's hurting. Someone who has seen hypocrisy in the church. Someone who has been wounded by a spiritual leader. Someone who is wrestling with some theological thing. And when we understand that they're in a space, not all, some are just deconstructing because it's a cultural phenomenon or they're rebelling against their parents or they don't like their church anymore. Okay, there's unhealthy deconstruction, but there's also the deconstruction of a soul that is screaming out for truth. And I'm seeing that happen right now. There are so many people who are in this space of, oh, I want, I want to know who Jesus is. I want to understand what my faith is all about. I, I want to really grasp these parts of scripture that are hard to digest. And there are, I mean, face it, there are some parts of the Bible that are pretty hard, right? You do those read through the Bible in the year programs. You start in Genesis. It's like, oh, this is awesome. It's fast moving for the most part. You get to Exodus. If you miss it, you can always watch the movie. But then you get to Leviticus. And how many read through the Bible plans have died the death of Leviticus? Thou shalt not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, dang it. And you take the goat out of the pot and you put him back outside. I mean, there are people who when they read through the Bible especially parts of the Old Testament, they're like, this is sexist, this is bloody, this is violent, this is gruesome, this is weird. And we need to show mercy to those who are in that space, understanding that it's like a a spiritual form of breaking a bone. Okay, they're hurting, they're struggling. What does it look like for us to walk with them through this season of doubt? The best thing we can say to someone who's deconstructing their faith is, I will love you through this. Let's pursue truth together. Let's unpack these parts of scripture together. 
And, and that's the heart of Jesus, right? No one showed more mercy to the doubter than Jesus. John the Baptist, are you the one or should we look for another? What? He baptized Jesus. And he's like, I don't even know if you're the Messiah. And Jesus d- didn't shame him. He didn't marginalize him. He showed mercy to him. He's like, that is the greatest prophet who has ever lived. No one showed more mercy to the doubter. We need to preach mercy to deconstruction. Finally, number three, preach the kingdom to tribalism. <laughs> preach the kingdom to tribalism. Ephesians chapter two says, God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. In an age and a time where people are getting tribal, they're running to their political groups, they're leaving churches because of their political perspective or who they endorse and the government. This is a moment for us as followers of Jesus to say, you know what? Our deepest identity isn't political. It isn't the color of our skin. It isn't ideological. It's not economic. Our identity is in the kingdom of God. We are citizens of a heavenly politic. And this is what Paul calls the new humanity. Again, keep in mind, he's writing to a time that was deeply divided over race and gender and politic. And he says, your new identity is you are a new humanity in Jesus. The new humanity is a space where labels no longer matter, where all of the narrow ways that the world uses to try and identify us evaporates. The new humanity, which should be the ethos of our communities, the new humanity is the place where we accept each other as God intended. The new humanity is the place where we may not see eye to eye with someone across the room, but we can stand shoulder to shoulder because we worship the same God. We can come to the same table. We can drink the same cup. We can eat the same bread. We can lay aside those differences. And I get it. Like Some people don't want that. Some people are going to get mad and offended because you're not making political statements. They're going to get mad and offended and leave your church because you said something that they perhaps disagreed with politically or even personally. A number of years ago in Portland, um, I made a joke in one of my sermons. Not a good idea, by the way. Um, I made a joke in one of my sermons. I said that uh, the word vegan uh, in Hebrew means bad hunter which is not a good homiletic in Portland. Let me tell you, there was a lady who wrote me this scathing email later that day, and she's like, I'm so triggered. I'm so offended. I'm, she left our church because I said the word vegan is bad hunter in Hebrew. There are going to be people who do that. And like, we just got to keep going. We got to keep doing what we're called to do. We got to be wiser than I was for sure. <laughs> but what the church needs today is not more preaching about a cause. It needs more preaching about the kingdom. Because the kingdom is God's answer to the division in the world today. And as heralds of God's kingdom, we have no higher calling than to remind the body of Christ of where their citizenship really lies. So we're at this fire Stumpster's fire of 2020 and 2021. And all around us are people are like, what are you saying? Big fella hut, big fella rat. And I think our calling in this moment is to preach Jesus 
to suspicion. Preach mercy to deconstruction. Preach the kingdom to tribalism. Thanks. Wow. Well, thank you so much uh, once again to to Dominic uh, for sharing the, the fruit of his labors and research and also the consequence of, I suppose, decades of ministries uh, amongst those who doubt. Um, Dominic, thank you. I think you really are helping us. And as I said at the beginning, uh, if you want a chance to learn from Dominic in person, um, then I really want you to be there in Costa Mesa, California, February 18th and 19th for our next in-person training event. It's being hosted by Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. We also have Tim Chaddock, who's going to speak to us about the power and the value of expository preaching. Uh, we really want this to be our best training event yet, and we want you to be there. Visit expositorscollective.com for details and for registration. Uh, maybe you can't make it, but maybe you want to sponsor somebody else. If there's a young and new, or if there's an older and more experienced preacher in your life, we would love to encourage them. So expositorscollective.com is going to give you the details and point you towards the registration for our next in-person training event. I'm looking forward to seeing many of you there, and I hope that this training event and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. Thank you.